Chapter 2, we'll try and attempt to do verse 65 to 68. This is topic 6, the last topic of this chapter, and the title is Description of an Enlightened Soul. Any questions before you start? So last verse, verse 64 we covered. We discussed how to, the mechanism of self-control, how to control your personality against sense objects. We said, it doesn't mean giving up everything, living in a cave. Anybody can tell me what, how do you, what is the way to perform self-control? Any ideas? Two parts. Reducing your desires. Reducing your desires, yeah. That's one way. Anybody else? There's two types of people. They either indulge without thinking, or there's the other half who think must not contact sense objects. And out of fear, they withdraw from the world. Both approaches wrong. It said, verse 64, take the middle path. Contact sense objects, they're there to be contacted. Enjoy the sense objects, but control, have control over them rather than they control you. Don't let them carry you away, take over your likes and dislikes. So we have to be in control of it. And how do you stay control of your senses? The intellect has to be strong enough to control it. No, I don't want to go to a restaurant again today. I went yesterday and the day before. I need to control it. Examine, control our likes and dislikes through the judgment of the intellect. Is this right for me? The other way is that we act impulsively. So all actions must be propelled by intellect, not impulses of the mind. The mind is impulsive. The child in you, I want this, I want that. The intellect is the adult. If you do this, then you're practicing self-control. And we said, a strong intellect sees what's going to happen before you embark on the experience. I must be aware. An average intellect realizes what's going to happen during the experience. A person with no intellect does not realize even after the experience. 
So what? I did it. So no need to give up sense objects, enjoy everything in life. But this verse 64 is saying, think before you act. That's the first part of self-control. The second part of self-control is to not create further likes and dislikes. Who can explain the second part? What does it mean not to create further likes and dislikes? How should you behave? How should you behave? End each experience with that experience. So after an experience, don't linger mentally on how, how good that experience was or how bad that experience was. Because when you linger, it creates further likes and dislikes. Remember I gave you an example of my friend in Vegas. He relived the experience every day. The desires become stronger and you, you need to go back again. So end perception with perception. Meaning, don't let the mind wallow in the experience. Don't let the mind keep reliving that experience mentally. And if you practice these two disciplines while acting in life, then we're practicing self-control. We attain peace of mind. We become happier. If the mind is calm, then your intellect is more firm and sharp. And this results in you being more efficient and productive in life. Which then leads you to wealth and happiness. And this is what everybody wants in life. If you practice self-control, you'll be rewarded with prashad. And the prashad will be peace of mind. Yeah. Any questions on that? That was the last verse we covered. And the reason I went through it in a bit more detail is because it relates to this next verse that we're going to cover today. Any questions on that? <coughs> so, verse 65. Prasade <laughs> In peace, all his sorrows are destroyed. The intellect of the tranquil mind soon becomes steady. So you practice self-control as in verse 64, and the result is the sorrows are destroyed. The mind becomes more peaceful. And the result is happiness, no more sorrow. What agitates the mind, by the way? Any idea? What, what agitates the mind? What is it that agitates the mind? Yeah, Nilam? Um, our unfulfilled desires, our likes and dislikes as well. That's what agitates the mind. 
Unfulfilled desires creates agitations. Agitations lead to sorrow because you can't fulfill all your desires. You're agitated, you're unhappy. If you want to achieve anything in life, you need to be able to think clearly. Is this the path I need to go on? Is this job that I'm going to take now? Is this the right job for me? Is this person right for me? Whatever you do, you have to think. You can't jump in. And if the mind is agitated, we can't think clearly. Everyone with me, yeah? If the mind is agitated, you can't think clearly. And as an example, imagine a plank of wood, one meter wide, which is quite wide, yeah? One meter wide. I put it between two walls. Two feet high up, yeah? I put it between two bricks, 10 feet across. And I say to you, walk across it. Any problems walking across it? One meter wide plank, 10, 10, 10 meters long, two feet high. I put it on a couple of bricks on either side. Anybody who'd be scared to walk across that? Yeah. You even do it with your eyes closed. You walk across it with your eyes closed. Now we put the same plank of wood that you've been walking across between two tall buildings, two tall buildings, 100 feet high. And I say, walk across, what will happen? Same plank of wood, same distance. What would happen? Yeah, anybody happy to walk across? You'd be scared. Whatever I fall, so high up. Basically, the mind is started to get agitated. What happens if I fall? I'll die. I can't do this. This is scary. So when the mind is agitated, intellect is not sharp. It stops you from thinking clearly. That's just an example. When the mind is agitated, you can't think clearly. So practicing self-control, you have prasadam of a calm mind. When the mind is calm, your intellect is sharper, more clearer, and you can apply it to whatever you do in life. You become more well-organized, more efficient, more productive, take control of your personality. And by doing this, it leads to wealth and happiness. Because whatever you're applying your mind, your intellect to, you're achieving it. So therefore, you become more successful. Leads to wealth and happiness. Anyone here not looking for wealth and happiness? Everybody in the world is looking for wealth and happiness. That is the main motivation for anyone. This is the formula of how to get it. No matter what you're doing in life, no matter who you are, two main motivations of any human being is wealth and happiness. Even if you're doing charity work, seva, you're doing it because it brings you happiness. I'm able to serve. It brings you inner peace, calm, and happiness. 
Any questions? Calm mind, sharp intellect. Sharp intellect, application in life. Application in life creates wealth, happiness. Is that clear to everyone? Yeah. So there's a formula in verse 65. And for the people who don't have the book, Ravi, could you put it up, please? Ravi? Thank you. So this is the formula for happiness. Happiness equals number of desires fulfilled over number of desires entertained. When you fulfill a desire, it brings you happiness. But that happiness doesn't last for long. Because you don't practice self-control, as discussed in the last verse, you end up adding more desires. So you become unhappy again. So you've exhausted one desire, but you've added another 10. Lingering, um, thinking about it, and creates more desires, as we said in verse 64. If you don't practice self-control, you end up with more than what you started with. So happiness, you can either increase the number of desires fulfilled and use self-control or decrease the number of desires you have. As long as the number of desires at the bottom is less than the number of desires you have, you are happy. So the top number has to be greater. Thank you. Any questions on that? Is that clear? If you have more desires than the desires you're fulfilling, then you'll be unhappy. You're never going to be able to fulfill them. There's too many. So you can either increase the number of desires fulfilled or reduce the number of desires you have. Now, the mind can want anything. It may not be possible for you to fulfill all your desires. So the scriptures teaches you how to reduce them. Through the three yogas, karma, bhakti, jnana, you reduce your desires. Any questions on that formula? Does that make sense? A person living in a shack, he has nothing, but hardly any desires. All they want is food for the day. When they get that, they are content. They are happy. One desire. I just need to feed my family. He gets enough food and more. He's over the moon. My family are fed. I'm happy. Person is a millionaire. He has a six-seater private jet. He wants a ten-seater jet. What happens? Anyone? Mentally agitated. I need, I want a 10-seater plane. Why can't I get a 10-seater plane? Miserable. His desires are more than the wealth he has. He can't afford a 10-seater plane. His desires are greater than the wealth he has. He's miserable. 
So it's not the amount you have, it's the number of unfulfilled desires you have that creates unhappiness. Any questions? Does that make sense? Is it clear? So by practicing the formula of self-control in verse 64, using this formula in life, we can gain wealth and happiness in the world. And this results in peace within, which is what everyone is looking for. These great sages, they knew how a human being thinks, what he wants from life, and therefore this formula is given. Okay, this is what you want, this is how you get it. I've never seen this guide to gain happiness anywhere else in all everything I've studied. It's the power of our scriptures. It's all in this book. And we pay thousands to go on some course to teach us this. Get rich quick, be happy. <laughs> in this Gita, it tells you the formula of how to get whatever you want from the world. Nila? Practice of self-control as prescribed in verse 64 results in peace of mind. In that peace, your mind is rid of all sorrows. You gain happiness. Furthermore, in a tranquil mind, your intellect becomes steady and sharp. Consequently, you become more efficient, productive and prosperous in your field of activity. Thus, the formula of self-control from verse 64 satisfies the two main pursuits of mankind, wealth and happiness. People pursue happiness directly or seek wealth with the hope of gaining happiness through it. Whether attempted directly or indirectly, the search for happiness inspires all activities in the entire world. Both fulfilling your desires and reducing existing desires increases happiness. A simple quotient gives the entire picture. Happiness is the ratio of desires fulfilled to the desires unfulfilled. To put it in the form of an equation, happiness equals number of desires fulfilled divided by the number of desires entertained. Your happiness increases by increasing the numerator or by decreasing the denominator or both. But in practical experience, when you fulfill a desire, you fail to practice the formula of self-control. Many more desires spring up. Consequently, the level of happiness often reduces with the fulfillment of a desire. But by living a life of self-control, your likes and dislikes wane. Your desires drop off. Your happiness increases. With a disturbed mind, your intellect cannot function properly. Conversely, when your mind is calm, your intellect becomes sharp. Your actions become more dynamic and productive. You progress in life. Verses 64 and 65 together provide the formula for finding peace and tranquility within and gaining wealth and prosperity in the world, thus satisfying the main pursuits of humanity. Thank you very much. Any questions? So you have to study these two verses. Think about them. Think how you can apply to yourself, your personality, your life. It's not going to happen overnight. So you, you gradually need to apply it to yourself. 
Yeah, practice with it. And that's how you will become a master from it. Verse 66. Nasti Asantasya kutha sukham nasti buddhira yuktasya nacha yuktasya bhavana nacha bhavayata santi asantasya kutha sukham There is neither knowledge nor meditation for the unsteady and to the unmeditative there is no peace. To the peaceless, how can there be happiness? So this verse summarizes, it says, those who practice what is prescribed in verse 64 and verse 65, and his focus is fixed on the self while doing this, practicing this, this person has chosen the correct path in life. He will get peace and happiness. He is called a yuktaha. So a person who does this, practice this, is following the right path in life. He'll get anything he wants. A person who does not practice this and does the opposite of this is termed an ayuktaha. So ayuktaha means a person who does not practice self-control. He merely acts on his likes and dislikes. No higher goal in life. No guidance of the intellect. Lacks judgment. Guidance, he has no knowledge of the self. No, no guidance. No knowledge of the self. And he, even if he did have knowledge, he can't concentrate on the self. This person will not be happy because he's mentally agitated all the time. Therefore, has no peace of mind, lost in the world. And this is the majority of people in the world. They're purely going by the likes and dislikes. No, no, no spiritual knowledge, lost in the world. Any questions? Does that make sense, Ravi? So... Learn verse 64 and 65. Make sure you're a yukta, not an ayukta. This will help you in life. No excuses now. See, this is a problem. When you learn from the scriptures, guidance, then you don't do it. Who you got to blame? Can't blame anyone but yourself. Self-inflicted. That's why sometimes when you learn the scriptures, you get more agitated. The standards raise. I have to put, try and become like this, and you don't. It takes a lot of work, effort, a lot of work. Hema. A yukta is one whose senses are under control and whose attention and concentration is fixed on the self within. 
Such a person has chosen the right path in life and moved steadily towards peace and happiness. And a yukta is the opposite of a yukta. He lacks discrimination and concentration upon the supreme. He does not practice self-control. He merely runs after his, his likes and dislikes without a higher goal in life. Consequently, he lacks peace of mind. Without mental peace, he cannot be happy. The last two verses describe the achievements of a yukta. He gains mental peace and material prosperity with self-control. His intellect exercises its control over his likes and dislikes. His mind gains peace. With the mind peaceful, the intellect acquires sharpness and strength. Thus, the intellect promotes peace and peace in turn promotes the intellect. A stronger intellect renders actions more dynamic and more productive. This verse and the next striking, strikingly contrasts an ayukta with the description of a yukta in verse 65. An ayukta has neither prosperity nor internal peace. Furthermore, without the guidance of the intellect, he is lost in the world. The next verse shows this inevitable end. Don't worry about the terminologies so much. It's a person who follows these principles, gains peace and happiness because his intellect is sharp. He applies it in his life. And a person who doesn't becomes lost in the world. No control. And what happens to him? Next verse. Any questions? Yukta, Yukta, I think it's quite self-explanatory. Indriyanam hi charatam yanmano nu vidiyate tadasya harati prajnam vayunavami bambasi indriyanam hi charatam Yan mano nu vidiyate tadasya harati pragnam vayunavami vambasi. For the mind which follows the roving senses carries away his intellect as the wind carries away a boat on water. So, this verse is linked to verse 60. We did say when we read verse 60 that it continues on verse 67. So verse 60 read, O Konteya, the turbulent senses of even a wise man while striving indeed forcibly carry away his mind. The turbulent senses carries away the mind, it said. In verse 60, here it goes one step further and continues from that verse and states that when the mind is carried away by the senses, it will then also carry away the intellect. Does that make sense? Verse 60 stopped at the mind is carried away by the senses. When the mind is carried away, the intellect follows. This is what verse 67 is saying. The mind will take away the intellect as well. 
just like the wind carries away a boat in the ocean. So this metaphor of a boat in an ocean is given. Very interesting. So there's a boat in the sea. The boat represents the individual, us, human being. The ocean is the world. The wind is our, is our desires, our passions of the mind. The captain of the boat is the intellect. Any idea what the compass is, which guides him? What does the compass represent? Any idea? Dermesh? Inner soul. Inner soul. Yeah, okay. What else? Anybody else? What does the compass represent? I'm not moving on until someone answers it. Direction. Direction from? The self. The to self, the self. To the self. Yeah, you're all there, but you haven't said the one word I'm looking for. Knowledge. Intellect. Nope. Consciousness. Not consciousness. You're all, you're all on the ballpark. What guides you? What are we doing right now? What are we learning? Knowledge, the scriptures. Scriptures. The compass is the scriptures, which guides you to the self, to meditation, what everybody else said, the soul, etc. But it's the knowledge of the scriptures that is guiding you. So the compass represents the scriptures. So boat represents the individual. The sea, the ocean is the world that we go through. The wind are the desires and passions of the mind. The captain is the intellect. He thinks, okay, which way shall we go? And the compass is the scriptures guidance so if a boat is left without a captain meaning the intellect if the boat is left without a captain and a compass in stormy weather what happens to the boat no captain to guide it no compass to guide it what happens to the boat in stormy weather it sinks sinks you'll be at the mercy of the ocean Mercy, mercy of the storms and the wind, the boat will eventually perish. Bottom of the sea, it will sink. The sea is always calm, but it's the wind that disturbs the sea and makes it stormy. The sea is calm all the time. It's the external wind and the storm that creates that, all the big waves. Similarly, the world is not turbulent. It is what it is. What makes it turbulent? What makes the world turbulent? It's how we re react and respond to it. Our mind makes the world turbulent. We see good as bad, we see bad as good. We see the world how we want to see it. We create that storm. The world is what it is. Two people contact the world. One is agitated, one isn't. If the world was 
bad, both people would be agitated. It's your own mind. A mind that makes it turbulent. So, going back to the metaphor, if the boat is guided by the captain and he uses a compass, it reaches the harbor of its destination safely. Yeah, correct? Similarly in life, if we are guided by the intellect and the scriptures, we reach the harbor of life. What is our destination? What is our destination in life? Yeah, Dharmesh? Connect with the self. Connect with the self. The seat of meditation leading to self-realization. That is our harbor. That is our destination. And if we do not take guidance, then we'll be left to our likes and dislikes, left to our feelings and emotions, left to our desires. These impulses will ultimately cause our destruction. That's the storm and the wind. Any questions? Does everyone understand the metaphor? It's really well put. You read that and you'll understand exactly what's going on in life. What the problems are for us. Oh, no, This verse picks up the sequence of thought from verse 60. Verse 60 states that the turbulent senses carry away the mind. Here it says the mind, drawn by the senses, carries away the intellect like the wind carries a boat in the ocean. The six intervening verses emphasizes the importance of the human intellect. Like a neglected boat perishing in the ocean, Man perishes in this world when his intellect is lost. Vedantic texts often use this metaphor of the boat. To understand a metaphor fully, one must equate the parallels. The boat represents the individual. The ocean stands for the world in which he lives. The winds for the passions of, of the mind. The captain of the boat, his intellect, the mariner's compass stands for the scriptures that guide him towards the harbor of meditation and peace. From this harbor, he steps directly onto the shore of reality. In the vast ocean, a boat without a captain or compass is entirely at the mercy of the fierce ocean winds. The winds toss the boat helter-skelter. It loses its direction and destination. Ultimately, it will be destroyed. Whereas a boat equipped with a proper compass and directed by a captain reaches the harbor for its destination. Similarly, if you do not make use of your intellect and take spiritual guidance, you will be under the mercy of your feelings and emotions, your whims and fancies, your likes and dislikes. These impulses will toss you in all direction till you meet with your destruction. But when, you, but when your alert intellect consults the scriptural doctrines 
it will free you from the influence of, your, of the devastating passions of your mind. You will then have a clear and comfortable passage through this world of challenges. Assured of a perfect life in the world, you will also gain the ultimate goal of self-realization. Thank you, Rumi. You see, if you, think, if you look at people in the world, they don't know where they're going, what they're doing. There's no goal for them. Someone might say, I want a bigger house, bigger car, I want more, more wealth, I want peace, I want happiness. But there isn't really any guidance of how to do this. They're the mercy of their mind. They're mercy of their desires. Like a, like a boat on a sea without a captain. This is how everyone's life is. So without the scriptures directing us, we don't know what our goal in life is. See, until we studied the Gita, we didn't know what our goal in life was. And we think we know everything. I know I'm right. You are wrong. We don't know nothing. See, if we knew, we'd be happy and peaceful all the time. But we're not. So we just go from, you know, like a pinball machine in the world. The ball goes all over the place. There's no real control. It goes left, right, up, down with shocks. This is how our life is. But we are used to it. We're neutralized to it. We expect it. And that's why we're used to it. And that's why we carry on with it. So we need this guidance so that we can direct our lives in the right direction, reach our goal. Any questions? But these verses are a bit shorter, so we're gonna do one more. Tasmat yasya mahabaho nikarhitani sarvasaha indriyan indriyathebhyas Tasya prajna pratishtita Tasmat yasya mahabaho nikarhitani sarvasaha Indriyan Indriyatebhyas Tasya Prajna Pratishtita Therefore, O Mahabaho, his wisdom is established whose senses are completely restrained from sense objects. Therefore, Arjuna, your wisdom will be established when you have complete control over your over sense objects. This is what Krishna is saying to Arjuna. He's talking to Arjuna. So this is the conclusion of the last nine verses. It's going to be a summary. Verse 60, senses drags the mind into the world. Verse 61, therefore control the senses, concentrate on the self. Verse 62, 63, if we don't control, then the ladder of fall. Remember, we said the ladder of fall. Yeah. Verse 64 explains 
how to do how to perform self-control, how to practice self-control. Verse 65 is when you practice self-control, you gain peace. When you have peace, makes the intellect more powerful, more sharp. You can apply it in the world, in whatever direct, in which, whichever you want to apply it to in your life. Verse 66, if we don't control, no peace, no happiness. Verse 67, the mind drags away the intellect and we perish. Now verse 68, therefore, thus smart, control the senses. It's a conclusion. So in this verse, Krishna concludes to Arjuna, the negative effects of the senses by stating that ultimately, if you want to reach the state of perfection, the state of self-realization, then you have to restrain the senses completely from sense objects. There's no two ways about it. This is the only way. Why is it the only way? What is, why is it the only way? What do the sense, sense objects do to you? What do your senses do to you? Vanita? All the senses keep you attached to the world. Keeps you attached to the world. And where do you want to go? want to look within so look within senses are outside we want to go inside so if you don't control your senses you can't go inside you're constantly outside then how are you going to manage to connect to the self senses keep you in the world that's why you need to control it and because the mind is attracted you need to develop the intellect so that the intellect can control the mind which then you can control the senses. It's quite simple. And you've, I think you've all come to the stage where you understand now why the intellect is important. So Krishna refers to Arjuna as Mahabaho, meaning mighty arm, you're a warrior, you're strong. You have the strength, the capacity. Therefore, for you, it should not be a problem. Control the senses, control your senses, and you will have a powerful intellect. When you have a powerful intellect, you'll be able to fight this war and win. You'll be able to think clearly. You're not going to be able to be, you won't be guided by the mind thinking, oh, who am I killing? Why am I killing this person, that person? You know the objective and you will just do it. That's why you have to control the senses. Is Krishna says Arjuna. Any questions? Vanita. Here Krishna logically concludes his scientific analysis of the devastating influence of the senses on a human being. Therefore, he declares, a person reaches a state of perfection when this sense, when his senses are completely restrained from sense objects. The use of the word dasmat, therefore, appearing throughout the Gita indicates that, it, that its message is based on logic and reason. Verse 60 states that the turbulent senses drag the mind away. The following six verses explain the role and the importance of the intellect. Verse 67 states that the mind, attracted to the senses, 
draw the intellect away with it. When all the important intellect perishes, one meets the total disaster, to meets with total disaster. This weakness from sensual indulgences cause all human degradation and destruction. Human perfection can therefore be measured by one's control over the senses in the world of sense objects. Arjuna is addressed as Mahabaho. Mahabaho literally means mighty armed and indicates that his strength and valor. The Lord thus reminds Arjuna of his great power and stability and st stability suggests that he, he should apply it to subdue his senses. He who, sorry, he who has an absolute mastery over the sense objects of the world gains the state of enlightenment. Thank you. Any questions? So this is why we need to study the scriptures for our guidance, because it tells us what we need to know to navigate in life. We're not born with this knowledge. If we were all born with this knowledge, understanding, we wouldn't have any problems in life. But none of us are perfect because of this problem. No guidance. And it's not our fault either because it's not available everywhere, this knowledge. It's not accessible. And this is the problem. So we're all quite fortunate that we have this knowledge available to us. We're very fortunate. It's all due to your past karma, your good karma that you, this knowledge is available to you. It's available to everybody, but you see the importance of it in your life. So you're, you should be very grateful to the universe that you have this. Now, out of so many people, you have this capacity to come to these classes and learn this. The least you should now do is the final step and try and apply some of it. Otherwise, it's all wasted. Your Sunday mornings, wasted if you don't apply it. Apply a little bit. And that only you can do. Krishna can go on and on and on. And we all bow down to Krishna, we all light the diva to Krishna, but it's up to us to practice some of his wisdom. That is up to us. No one can make us do that. Any questions? Today's Bank Holiday Weekend, we said we'll keep it short. So I'm a man of my word. Any questions? So next class, we will finish chapter two. We finish. And from chapter three, it calms down, tones it down, much more accessible, easier to understand. Krishna spoon feeds Arjuna the knowledge slowly, one spoon at a time. And we'll be doing the same thing. So all this will come to fruit from the next chapter as you break it all down. Like I said, chapter two should have been chapter 18. That's why it's so tough. So don't worry too much what, how much you got from that chapter two. Chapter three, it'll all be brought, toned down, diluted.
Okay, have a great weekend.